Good morning, friends. My name is Patrick Schlabs, and I am one of the pastors at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in downtown Charleston. We are so glad that you've joined us for this time of worship. Before we begin our time looking at the scriptures, I invite you to join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning for your word. Thank you that your word uh, teaches us and challenges us and corrects us. Thank you most of all that your word reveals who you are. And we ask now this morning, wherever it is that we find ourselves, that your scriptures would be open to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would see a glimpse of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and soon to come again. And by seeing Jesus, may we be transformed to become like him. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. So when I first joined the staff of the cathedral about four and a half years ago, uh, I met a young chef. And he served at that time at one of the finest restaurants in the entire region, in all of the southeast. And over the course of time, we became good friends. Um, I was able to walk with him as he um, um, dated and was engaged with his, what would soon become his wife. And I was able to officiate his wedding. And for a long time, as our friendship developed, he asked us again and again to come to his restaurant. He said that he would uh, make sure that we could get reservations that were very hard to come by at that time. But he asked us again and again. And, and for some reason, we were a bit reticent. We delayed. I, I think I was a bit cautious and didn't feel like I was receiving uh, perks or special favors or anything like that or taking, taking advantage of the friendship. But he asked again and again, and he finally persuaded us. And so we set up a, a reservation. And when we showed up, we gave our names to the hostess when we walked in. And as soon as we said our names, uh, someone else walked out and greeted us with uh, champagne. And they said that they'd been expecting us and were so delighted that we were there. And we were a bit shocked at this. This was a bit uh, surprising. We expected, we'd been to this restaurant before, and we expected kind of the standard, um, you know, high, high, high quality experience. But we did not expect the personalized service. And as soon as we got to our table, our waiter greeted us by name. And on behalf of the chef and our friend, welcomed us. And they even talked about that they knew that we had two kids at home. We knew that we were finishing seminary and that our, our, our life was complex. And they were so excited that, they joined, that we joined them for uh, this meal. And they offered us, and they said, you know, you can order something off the menu. Or, if you prefer, our chef and our friend uh, would love to just cook for you. They love to just make dishes and bring them out as you need them. And I'll just encourage you with this. If that is ever offered to you, always take them up on that. Throw the menu out and let amazing chefs just cook you delicious food. And so it was for us that for about four hours we feasted. They just kept bringing food. We had amazing seafood, incredible vegetables, amazing desserts. And they even paired wine with every single course that we had. And at the very end of our meal, as we were leaving, they invited us to go back into the kitchen and greet um, the cooks who had prepared our food to meet the head chef and to meet and greet our friend back there. Our bellies were full that night, but so were our hearts. Coming out of this difficult season, they, our friends showed us a deep concern and care. They fed us, but in feeding us, they cared for us. You don't need me to remind you that we find ourselves this morning in a time of plague. And it is evermore a time of death 
It's a time of economic collapse. On top of that, it's a time of deep uh, societal polarization. It's a time of uh, racial unrest and protest. And I know to greater and lesser degrees, all of us experience that in various forms of sadness, in anxiety, in depression, or maybe even more acutely, in sickness itself, or in homelessness due to losing a job and losing provision, or just the general financial anxiety and insecurity that comes from the economic realities that we are looking at. We're all experiencing a sense of grief at the brokenness of the world. And of course, this list goes on and on and on. We would be here for hours if I listed all of the evidences of the brokenness of this world. And I think at a fundamental level, it begs the question, if there is a God, where is he? Does God care for us and for this world? That is the question that resonates at times in scripture. It resonates throughout the Psalms. The psalmist asks again and again, where are you? Do you hear this? Do you see this? So much injustice, so much oppression, so much brokenness. Do you care? Our gospel lesson this morning from Matthew 14, I think speaks clearly to this very question. And so I invite you, if you have a Bible, we will spend all of our time there. I invite you to open it up and turn to Matthew 14. I think it's helpful for you and for me to see um, the, the, the way that the text lays itself out. If you have a Bible there, you'll see uh, clearly from the title that our passage from this morning is the very famous feeding of the 5,000. And I was surprised to learn as I uh, read up on this passage this week that this is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And so why is it that the Gospel writers viewed this story as so important that each of them had to tell it? Matthew in particular contrasts this story with another instance right before it at the beginning of chapter 14. And the title there, in, in my Bible at least, says the death of John the Baptist. But of course it's a bit more complex than that. John the Baptist, if you remember, is a prophet. He is the, 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 the precursor to the ministry of Jesus. He calls Israel to repentance to prepare the way of the Lord. And he calls out specifically the religious leaders in Herod, who is the ruler of Judah at that time. And Herod is throwing this party, we learn, and there's much drinking and much consumption. And at one point, his wife's daughter comes in and dances for them. And it pleases him, it says so much, that he says, I will give you anything, anything that you ask for, up to half my kingdom. And very shrewdly, her mother says, I want the head of John the Baptist. She was uncomfortable with John the Baptist's criticism of her relationship with Herod, and so she is out for vengeance. She is out to silence this voice. In verse 12, we find that John's disciples come after he is beheaded to retrieve his body, to bury it. And it says specifically that they tell Jesus. And so Matthew contrasts this feast, this uh, perverse feast, with the feeding of the 5,000, with Jesus' feast for his people. And yet it does not begin in joy and celebration of God's provision. It actually begins with a time of mourning. And one can assume that John's disciples 
And maybe even Jesus himself could be asking that same question that we all find ourselves asking. Does God care? Does God care about the life of this great prophet who gave himself fully to prepare the way for Jesus? Does God care that this is Jesus' own cousin, that he is executed by the state because of a frivolous drinking party? Understandably, Jesus responds to the news of his cousin's death with grief. Scripture tells us that he uh, withdraws to a desolate place to be by himself. I know that that is uh, the heart cry of many of you introverts during this time of quarantine. You can say, amen. You're ready for a place to withdraw to and to be by yourself, to a desolate place even. But the crowds catch wind of this. They hear that Jesus has gone out somewhere to be by himself and they do not give him time to grieve. They follow him, much like a paparazzi following a celebrity. And so Jesus, in in verse 14, sees this crowd. And rather than trying to retreat further, rather than trying to row his boat extra fast so he can outrun their feet, to go be alone, to grieve by himself. It says that he sees this crowd and he has compassion. You'll remember I preached about four weeks ago and talked about the compassion of Jesus that we saw in Matthew 9 when he sees the crowd. His heart goes out to them. His heart uh, uh, cries out within him that he must not be silent. He must do something. Commentator Dale Bruner says that the word that's used here to describe the, the sick is, is the wretched poor. Jesus looks at these people who are on their last leg, who have nothing to offer, who are deeply broken. And he responds with compassion. In the midst of his own pain and grief over the brokenness of the world, over the death, the unjust death of his cousin, he responds to them with compassion. He offers himself to them and he heals them. In the middle of his brokenness, Jesus cares deeply for their broken bodies and he responds by healing them. As the passage continues, it it appears that Jesus spent much of the day with that work, showing compassion, healing broken bodies. And it comes to evening and the disciples famously come to Jesus and, and they say, send the crowds away. Again, Bruner comments that this is the only time in all of the gospels when the disciples command Jesus to do something. It's in the imperative voice. And they say, Jesus, send them away. You've done enough. Your work here is done. You've healed as many as you can. Now it's time for dinner and we don't have enough food for them. Jesus' response to them is strong and it's direct. And he says, you give them something to eat. We don't have to send them away. You give them something to eat. Historians tell us that this region, in this region, the the largest town was about 3,000 people. And so it would have been virtually impossible for any town to absorb this large group of people to have enough food for them. So they were in an impossible situation. And so Jesus says, what do we have on hand? Bring me what you have. And one can assume a slight tone of mockery when they say, here, this is what we've got. Seven things, right? Five loaves, two fish. What good is this going to do? What good is this meager meal going to do for this great amount of people? And in verse 19, it says that then Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. 
Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So what's, what do we see here? We see that Jesus cares about broken bodies, but he also cares about hungry bellies. Jesus feeds them simply because they are hungry. Clearly, they would have survived, especially those who have been healed, right? They must have been rejoicing and celebrating that he has healed them. He's taken away their diseases. They could have survived the journey home. But again, Jesus is compassionate. He cares for them. He cares for their literal bodies. John Calvin says this about this passage. Hitherto, Christ had worked in feeding souls, and now he extends his office as shepherd to the care of their bodies. So I want to make three observations about this particular text and Jesus' provision of food for them. And the first is that, that Jesus cares for actual bodies. He made their bodies. He loves them, and so therefore he provides for them. Humanity in general, and I think Christians maybe in particular, are always tempted to a certain type of dualism. It was incredibly dominant at this time in in the form of Gnosticism, where we tend to denigrate the earthly, physical bodies that are sweaty and smelly and dirty and sick and broken in favor of the spiritual, right? The beautiful, the perfect. We exalt the spirit and denigrate the flesh. We long for heaven, but despise our existence here on this earth. But here we must not do that. We see that Jesus cares for our bodies. He took a body upon himself in order to redeem bodies and creation. The provision of food as a means of caring for people is a strong theme throughout scripture. And I think the most prevalent example of it is in the Exodus when God rescues people from Egypt and then in chapter 16, he provides for them food, this bread called manna. It's one way that God shows his deep abiding care and love for people, for bodies by feeding them. Second, Jesus uses here in this story the simple and ordinary things. Things like bread and fish and fussy disciples to show how extraordinary his care for people is. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to to respond like the disciples and say, all we have is this. We just have these seven things, just a few loaves and a few fish. What good will that do with the needs of my neighborhood, with the needs of my family, with the needs of our city, with the needs of this world? And yet we see here that God uses the simple and the ordinary things to bring about extraordinary care and love for this world. It's why we do things like Bridge Church yesterday, which many of you partnered with. It's simple, right? It's it's, it's sandwich bags. And yet God uses that to fill hungry bellies of people across our city. It's the way God uses something like the C3 fund. Small donations, Large donations that have been used to bless our friends and neighbors who've been so deeply affected by COVID. God shows his care for us, his people, so that we can extend his care for the world. Verse 20 says this, And they all ate 
And they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. The final observation about this passage is that Jesus' care is abundant. It is more than enough. There are leftovers. He feeds 5,000 women and children and there are 12 baskets left over. And so it is with us that we offer our meager gifts, our money, our resources, our sandwich bags, our acts of kindness, our acts of compassion. We offer them meagerly and Jesus multiplies them. And so we can be confident We can lavishly give of ourselves, of our time and our resources for the sake of our neighbors because there is always enough in the kingdom. There's always provision for us. As we give away, the Lord gives to us more. And we find that we are blessed in that process, in that emptying. And I know that some of you listening to this may be skeptical that a simple meal, a simple miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people 2,000 years ago, doesn't do much. In light of all the suffering that we see today, in light of all the suffering that we've seen throughout history, what good is God's care 2,000 years ago for this group of people compared to centuries of war and destruction and genocide and hatred, racism, misogyny, a pandemic, polarization? If God cares for us and for this world, why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he change things? But what we see here in this gospel is that Jesus does not just offer the world his teaching or his healing or miracles, feeding of the 5,000. What Jesus offers this world and what he offers us is himself. Jesus offers us himself. He offers us his self emptying incarnation where he takes upon himself a body that is frail, that is broken, that is wasting away. He offers us his selfless, sinless life walking among people in this world. He offers us his broken body pierced and crushed for our sins. He offers us a glimpse in his resurrection of new creation of our future trajectory. He offers us his rule and his reign in the cosmos now, in this very moment through his ascension. He offers us his spirit, his word, his church, his people, and his sacraments. Friends, we see God's ultimate care in the world by the offering of himself. Because he is broken, he offers this world healing. He becomes poor so that this world and us may become rich. He offers his body to nourish us, to feed us, to give us sustenance for the journey. More than that, we see here in this text, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, a glimpse of the trajectory of God's world. Because he has offered himself, we see a glimpse of what creation renewed and restored will look like. When a desolate place like here in Matthew 14, is turned into a banquet hall. In the same way, this desolate, broken world will be turned into a place of feasting where God himself will provide for us rich food, aged wine, blessed, broken, and given for us, for this world. 
meals like I experienced at Fig with my friend who was the chef are tiny glimpses of our future. The marriage feast of the Lamb. And so for those of you who are grappling with the reality of our moment, for those of you who are sick, for those of you who are dealing with death, for those of you who are lonely and depressed and anxious, my encouragement to you this morning is that God offered himself for you to show how much he cares. And for all of us, as we know and remember and experience God's care in the midst of all we're going through, we're offered an opportunity to show God's care for the world, to display God's care for the world that is full of broken bodies and hungry bellies in this moment. I want to close with a quote from Henry Nouwen that I think captures so well and so beautifully this idea. He says, When Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, he summarized in these gestures his own life. Jesus is chosen from all eternity, blessed at his baptism in the Jordan River, broken on the cross, and given as bread to the world. Being chosen, blessed, broken, and given is the sacred journey of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And when we take bread, bless it, break it, and give it with the words, this is the body of Christ. We express our commitment to make our lives conform to the life of Christ. We too want to live as people chosen, blessed, and broken, and thus become food for the world. Friends, our God cares for us and he cares for this world. And because of that, he offered himself. So may we respond in thanksgiving and offer our very lives to God and to this world. Amen.